Hello, everyone. This is Mark Vina with more insights and strategy. Welcome to today's podcast. Um, I'm here and joined by Will Townsend and Anshel Sag, our illustrious analysts with more insights and strategy. And we're here to talk, as we normally do, about some very important topics uh, in the news. And it's been actually a very exciting week. In fact, uh, there was a lot of excitement last weekend, as Will Will Townsend will talk about um, in a few seconds. But let me introduce both Will and Anshel. Will? Hi, Mark. Glad to be on the podcast this week. Thanks for joining us, Anshel. Thanks for having me again. I'm excited to uh, talk about some latest news. Yeah, there is some big news, frankly, earlier to, uh, early this morning that I'm sure you'll be able to lend some insight on. But first, yeah, and let's actually talk about that a bit here. Um, apparently, there was some news this morning about some vulnerabilities with Intel Silicon. That was, uh, and again, this is not old news. This is some stuff that just got reported early this morning. So, Will, not Will, I'm sorry, Anshel, I'll, I'll hand it off to you. Yeah, so, um, you know, there's been a lot of news over the last few months about vulnerabilities and Intel CPUs and other chips as well. Uh, basically, it's come out and that there's more vulnerabilities and there's been an expectation that the previous vulnerabilities that were found and patched um, probably wouldn't be the last of it and it looks like they're not. So today, a, a German computer magazine um, has basically reported that there's eight new vulnerabilities um, for Intel CPUs that are basically based on the common vulnerability enumerator directory, and each of them requires their own patches. Um, and four of them are, are basically like high-risk high vulnerabilities, which means that they're much more probable that they will have an impact on, on security based on you know what devices are out there what versions of operating systems are out there so now intel and microsoft are working you know double time to patch these um and and the cool thing about the the computer magazine was that they didn't publish the details of the of the vulnerabilities to give intel and microsoft more time to patch them um but it looks like these ones are called Spectre NG, which mm-hmm. is like new next generation or new generation of Spectre, um, you know, family of vulnerabilities. Um, so it looks like Intel's commitment to, you know, continue to patch the vulnerabilities in their CPUs is a good one because they're going to need it. And, you know, the fact that they rolled out this new division for security probably is because they knew these were coming and that they're going to continue need to continue to need to address them as they come up. So Asha, let me ask you a question because I think it's a question on a lot of people's minds, especially if you're a, 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 a long-time Intel user of processors. Do you really think that, um, and again, I don't want to be, you obviously don't want to accuse any company of being, you know, hiding things, but you know your you know your just um, feelings and the way that uh, you know Intel approaches these things. Are they approaching this in a very transparent manner, or is this kind of things like, well, we cross our fingers, we've we've we think we've solved some of the earlier ones that were announced earlier in the year, and then these things just crop up. I mean, to, to, give me your perspective on 
you know, just the way they come about things. And obviously, there's a, there's a, there's a combination issue that it's not always always a silicon issue. There's you know, Microsoft obviously plays a role in this as well. But you know, yeah. I'm sure it's on people's minds when okay, here's yet another crop of uh, issues they've got to be worried about in terms of vulnerabilities. Well, the thing is, is this when it comes to security, um, there's a there's a very fine line you have to walk when it comes to disclosure and being open as opposed to being secure. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're too open and, and you disclose too much too soon, you open all your customers to a potential hack because right. they're not they haven't had time to patch. Um, they haven't had time to address the issue, and as a result, the world knows that all your customers mm-hmm. that are using your chips are now potential targets. So, you know, in their in their world, it's a very fine balance that they have to strike, and I think that they've done the best they can. I mm-hmm. think initially they kind of, the very initial response to the first specter um, and meltdown um vulnerabilities i think they were more nuanced in the response and they took the brunt of the responsibility even though they weren't necessarily the only ones that were targeted right and that's important to point out right yeah however i would say they've become more open and they've tried to do their best to explain what they're doing how they're doing it and when it should be available however you know, they still have to withhold things because if they tell everybody everything immediately, then there's a lot of companies and a lot of governments that could become vulnerable because some of these are pretty serious. And if someone knows what they're doing, they could, you know, utilize these because, you know, if they have, they know the attack vectors, then they can utilize them you know, over the course of a few weeks, because no nobody's going to patch anything immediately. And I think that's a great point, actually, because you know the you know the companies like Intel or AMD, they always have to strike a very careful balance. Because the more transparent you are, you know, you do open yourself up to making a bad situation worse. And in the case of the publication that you just pointed out, uh, they did the, the, I, I think the right thing, obviously, in terms of not disclosing so much that they could, you know, um, exactly. make, bad, make bad actors do even worse things. So I think that's a yeah, really, and really great I point. Mean, these guys, they're, they're, it's called C, C-T. It's like a computer magazine part of Heisa Online. And um, they're, they've been doing computer tech reporting for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. So they, they know, like, they know what's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they did a good job of reporting it and now everyone's kind of spreading it, but not to the degree where there's too much detail. Well, and from your perspective, and especially if you look at, um, you know, we're going to talk about this a bit in a few minutes, um, you know, Intel's earnings announcements, they had a very, very strong corner, uh, quarter. And certainly the, 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 uh, the bad news they had early in the year related to some of these issues certainly didn't impact their um, business in a, in a major way. But I guess the question for you, Anshel, is that you wouldn't necessarily, well, let me make it even more specific than that. I mean, if you had friends who said, hey, I want to go out and buy a PC with an Intel processor, you wouldn't discourage them to do that just based on this type of stuff, if I follow your line of thinking the way you kind of... uh, No, definitely not. I mean, if you look at most of these vulnerabilities, a lot of them are actually targeted around cloud computing Mm -hmm. um, and, and data center. 
So, you know, that's a bigger risk, actually, because uh, so many users that aren't, you might not even have a PC and you could still be vulnerable because the, the cloud servers are being, you know, open right. to these risks. So right. I, I think the best thing you can do is, you know, make sure that Intel is held accountable and fixes these problems. Um, because, but I also don't think this is going to be the end of it because I think, you know, in that article that they published, it sounds like they're all they have access to in terms of information is Intel, but they believe there might be some, you know, exposure to ARM as well. Right. Well, well, and let, let's face it, we live in a world where it, you'll never be, the, the, the train never stops saying, hey, I'm completely done. I've got all the right security and uh, pre- precautions in place if you're, if you're a company like an Intel or an AMD. I mean, there's always bad actors out there looking to circumvent things. So you just have to be vigilant and, uh, and as you said, hold companies accountable uh, to what they're doing. And it looks like they're doing that, and obviously they take it, the, these kind of uh, issues very seriously. Let's, yeah. uh, l- let's uh, flip the topic to the next one, and that's another newsworthy topic. And I hate to use the word collusion because every time you hear the word collusion, people think about it in a uh, <laughs> in a non-technology sense, uh, especially over the last uh, year or so. But there's been some issues with memory um, and some collusion activity that's been reported, uh, some class action uh, litigation going on. So, um, Anshel, let me uh, get your perspective on that. Yeah, so some it's not actually a government lawsuit. It's actually like a... A civil lawsuit, if that, my, if I'm understanding it correctly, um, basically someone's claiming that the memory manufacturers of the world, of which there are very few, um, have colluded together to basically drive up the price of memory chips on a global scale, uh, which has driven up the price of graphics cards, right, and DRAM, and as a result entire computer systems and i mean the way i look at it is you know we're going to have to see some proof however if you look at the price of ram today it is more than double what it was less than a year ago right so there's i mean yes the cryptocurrency boom did make a big difference in terms of the prices of a lot of components however Memory is not a component that is as necessarily crucial to the deployment of a cryptocurrency server. Mm-hmm. Um, you need GPUs more than you need DRAM. Um, yes, GPUs do have their own type of RAM on board, but it's not the same as system memory. But system memory is like insanely expensive. Like it's literally doubled in price like gpus did except for guess what gpus have started to come down in price and dram has not right well and i think the interesting uh and anybody who's bought a pc lately i I bought an imac a brand new spanking high-end imac about a couple of months ago and i went to upgrade the memory (laughs) and it was it was you know scary you know in terms of what i paid for to just upgrade the system to 64 gig and you know to your point especially with graphics cards and GPUs, um, it's been scary, especially in the, in, the, in the gaming space where people, you know, the gamers, you know, routinely want to have the best, highest performing graphics in their systems. And because of the cryptocurrency issue, and some of it's related to, to demand as well. It's not, it's, you know, it's not completely a, uh, demand has, certainly plays a role in it. 
you know, the, you, you see these, um, like, for example, the 1080 GeForce graphics card, which is kind of the bellwether up until recently, of, you know, the, probably the best graphics card you could buy out there. Um, I mean, it, it costs you an arm and a leg, frankly, if you want to upgrade your system. So um, that's certainly been an issue. I, where, where do you see this going? I, I think um, what will happen is um, I think it will go through the courts, but I also think governments will start to look at it more closely because it got so much attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure that it will necessarily become a lawsuit from the government's perspective in terms of criminal investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think long term, you know, this has happened before, and I, it wouldn't be entirely impossible for it to have happened again. Right. Right. So. Well, interesting stuff, and uh, more of this has to play out, uh, obviously. But um, but flipping on to our, uh, our colleague, Will Townsend, he had an exciting Sunday last weekend because there was, the, of course, the announcement of the T-Mobile and uh, Sprint deal, and uh, there was a flurry of activity. And uh, I know Will has some very profound views on this topic, and some things have happened, of course, to the, uh, during the week. But, Will, let's get your perspective on the implications and uh, where it's headed. Sure, Mark. So thanks again for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it started off exciting on Sunday when uh, when the email rolled across my um, my mail client that, uh, that Sprint and T-Mobile were finally going to do this deal. This was uh, basically the third iteration. They've been, they've been dancing for a couple of years now, but it, it finally uh, officially all came together. Uh, both CEOs John Lagiri and uh, Marcelo Clory um, got on the phone and you know basically announced the intent to put these two companies together. What's interesting is that if regulators do approve this, which I believe they will, and we can go into a little more detail uh, behind my thoughts there, it'll create the the second largest carrier in the US with just over 100 million subscribers. So that right. puts it just behind Verizon Wireless at about 115 million and just slightly ahead of AT&T where you know AT&T is at about 94 95 million. So yeah, it it, it kind of makes things, you know, quite interesting going moving from from 4 to 3. What is that, you know, and I, I don't know this, but I know I'm sure you will. What is their combined market share in let's say in the US market, uh, T-Mobile and Sprint together? Because of course that's one of the things regulators will look at is you know what are the anti uh, the um, antitrust implications of any deal like this? Well, you know, you know, before any sort of um, combination, you know, T-Mobile was number three, Sprint was uh, was a fairly distant number four. So again, combining the two companies that puts them in a in a in a second place position among the the major U.S. carriers. Not a big deal. That's a big deal. It is. Mm. It is a big deal. Um, but you know it. You know. It was interesting on the merger call. It, it sounded more like a political rally than it did <laughs> the two companies coming together. And I, I was invited on NPR radio earlier this week and, and provided some of my feedback there. But what John and Marcelo really spoke to was um, job creation and beating China to 5G. So I, I found it quite interesting. 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 But if you had to handicap it right now, because I know you're that kind of guy, um, how would you handicap this? Do you think it happens? Do you think the, they uh, get it blessed by the government? I think it does happen for, for a number of reasons. You know, number one, um, John uh, will lead the organization going forward. Marcelo actually has stepped down as CEO. He is now chairman. He is leading the, the fight, you know, or the, 
not, I don't want to call it the fight, but leading the charge to um, convince regulators that this deal makes sense. Um, John at T-Mobile has proven to be very disruptive. He's done a lot of things to uh, bring more value to subscribers, uh, raising data limit caps on unlimited plans, um, providing lower pricing, uh, decoupling phones from contracts. So John has got a, a great track record proving that um, he's willing to deliver more and more customer value. What's always a concern with, you know, with a merger is, you know, is it going to create anti-competitive issues? Is it going to raise prices? Is it going to limit options? And I think there's a, there's a long legacy, at least uh, under John's leadership at T-Mobile, that, um, that that's quite the contrary. You know, and what's also interesting, too, is with the two companies combining, their spectrum footprint is quite impressive. So the ability to be able to propagate and deploy mobile 5G um, a, a, amongst, you know, a number of different um, bands um, is quite impressive. And obviously, there's some leverage in cost savings as well. So, you know, to roll out these uh, 5G networks, it involves billions and billions and billions of dollars in spend. So they can be um, a little more effective. And it, it will take them some time to um, synchronize, you know, the, the, the networks because there's some slight nuances and differences, as Anshul quite, you know, well knows. But uh, over time, I think this deal is going to deliver value um, to, uh, to the consumer. And I think it's going to position... Uh, the U.S. wall to capitalize on 5G. You know, the, right. a lot of the concerns around, you know, China beating uh, the U.S., why, why is that such a big deal? Uh, you know, I don't believe it's, uh, it's, it's a national security issue. I believe what, what bothers the current administration in Washington is that they don't necessarily want to cede an advantage to China in getting a jumpstart on, quote, unquote, the digital economy. 5G is going to do a lot of things to revolutionize use cases and create new paradigm shifts, much like you know we've seen in the past with the movement from, from film cameras to digital cameras and what ride sharing has done to disrupt the taxi cab industry. You're going to see some really cool applications with autonomous driving. That's been a big one. That's been ballyhooed in the news. Um, you also have, you know, really um, interesting new cases around um, factory, you know, remote automation and telesurgery. Not telehealth, but actually telesurgery over wireless networks. So um, I think the concern there is that, you know, the U.S. doesn't want to give China a jump start in, the, in that kind of that digital economy. And that's what's sort of driving, um, you know, a lot of the rhetoric maybe, you know, out of Washington about let's not let China beat us to 5G. Right. Right. Well, uh, you know, I'm a big fan when something is going to benefit the consumer. That's always a good thing. And it sounds like it's not only going to benefit the consumer, but it's also going to um, accelerate the uh, implementation of 5G, which I think everybody agrees is a, a big deal. Um, on that topic of things that are interesting from a financial advantage standpoint, uh, the Samsung stock split um, happened very recently. And I know that, um, Anshel, you've got some views on that. Yeah, I um I was on CNBC talking about the Samsung stock split this week, and um I, you know the way I see it is Samsung stock is actually pretty expensive in terms of you know accessibility to consumers. Right. Any any financial institution or serious investor can afford shares in Samsung, um, but they did a fifty to one split. Right. Uh, which basically allows the, anybody who wants to buy a Samsung stock to actually be able to afford it, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to paying thousands of dollars per share. Um, and that's kind of their their move to 
make their stock more accessible to retail investors, which are usually known as consumers, right. people who buy their products, as opposed to people who are buying the share to, um, you know, make an investment long term. Um, a lot of retail investors usually buy a product, a company stock because they own their products or they like their products. Um, but they also sell their stock if they don't like what the company's doing or if the news is bad. So they're much more reactionary. And I think that this will probably raise Samsung's stock long term. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it will also potentially, if enough retail investors buy in at this split, um, you may see more volatility as a result of them making it more accessible. Because right. whenever you make your stock more accessible to retail investors, it tends to become more volatile. There's an implication. You're correct about that. But, you know, and, if, and you don't see many 51 splits, frankly. That's a, you know, that, I mean, that's a fairly dramatic. Yeah, um, it only it only really happens when your stock is really expensive. High, really high, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people don't talk about it, but, like, if you look at Samsung's stock, I think – you know, this week it was, you know, before they did the halt, it was like two and a half grand per share. So, like, that's, you know, well above what Apple and Amazon and Facebook are at. And people don't really talk about it much in the US, but it is a pretty high valued stock. So, what they're doing is they're splitting it 50 to 1. So, right. it can actually be purchased by people. Um, and that's, you know, that may also be why Apple did it too, because, you know, Apple's stocks are to get pretty expensive. So they did a split and it made it more accessible to retail investors as well. Right, right. Well, and, and speaking of, of even more exciting things beyond stock splits, um, uh, Facebook, obviously, they've been in the news recently, the last couple of weeks with uh, Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress. But this week they, have, they had their big F8 event, which is their big. Um, a deal where uh, developers come together and uh, uh, Facebook, you know, announces uh, new things, which they did. There was a variety of different annou- uh, announcements that they had. In fact, I know, Will, you're very excited because they, they're getting into the dating game. So that's yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, in fact, some of the uh, – on that particular to- topic, um, you know, many of the um, – Dating uh, businesses like Match.com and others, they took a fairly significant hit in the market once um, there was the announcement that Facebook would get into the dating game. It'll be interesting, interesting to see how that pans out. Um, but the one topic I do want to talk about it, that is that uh, Facebook uh, did ship their Oculus product this week. And I know, like myself, uh, Anshel's a big gadget guy. He played with it. Uh, you've had it for the last couple of days? Yeah, Anshel so... Yeah, they they did announce it at at F8. So they did have previews at GDC for developers. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they did was on the first day of the conference, which was on Tuesday, uh, they announced that it's, first of all, that everybody in the audience is getting one and that it's available now. So you mm-hmm. could go and buy it from Amazon and you can buy it from Best Buy. Um, I went to Best Buy and picked it up. I unfortunately could not go to F8 this year because I had an important appointment that day, um, but I still got one, and I've been playing it with playing with it for the last couple of days, and I was impressed when I first tried it out, and I continue to be impressed by it as I continue to use it. Um, I, you know, I'm really surprised by how much capability this little headset has for $200. 
Right. I, I truly, I truly believe this is the the retail mainstream vision of what VR can do mm-hmm. and what VR will be, which is highly social, um, very simple games, and lots of media consumption, which is kind of what you know a lot of people are doing today on their phones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just VR takes that immersion to the next level, and the Oculus Go is a really nice headset, well designed in my opinion, and I think that. Um, they're gonna they're gonna have a lot of success with it over the, this coming year. I right. think most of their volume is probably gonna be in the holiday season, to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that they launched it now, so that they've they've got a few months to work out any kinks, if there might be any, and give developers a chance to build better applications for it. It already right. has a thousand apps, which is part of you know Facebook's strategy of deploying. You know, a lot of the applications they've built for Gear VR and for the Oculus Rift and porting some of them into this Oculus Go. So it's got a lot of things you can do with it already. Right. And that's a big number. Of course, they've been working on it for a long period of time. And uh, but a thousand applications is a huge number. Uh, the, the question I have for you is that, you know, the, the, the issue with VR, you know, has been, you know, is there going to be a killer app or a category of apps? that allow more mainstream consumers to embrace it other than the enthusiastic um, users like ourselves. And, um, you know, what, what I'd love to get your feedback, if you're assuming you've played with it yet, uh, um, yet is didn't they have, don't they have a Netflix app for it? And have, you had, a chance to, have you had a chance to play with that? Yeah, I mean, I've used it. It's just the thing is Netflix app is actually pretty solitary. Mm-hmm. There's other apps where you can watch videos and movies with friends. Netflix is just Netflix apps mm-hmm. or Netflix content. Um, but if you want to watch other content, you have to use other applications. So, the, you know, I think part of what they're trying to do is make it more social. So, yeah, you can watch Netflix, but I feel like a lot of content people watch today isn't just Netflix. So, there's other applications where you can sit down next to somebody and talk about something while you're watching right. a movie. The one cool thing I did with already on the headset was uh, a buddy of mine called me into his his oculus room which is like a little you know hangout space you can create and one of the pl- places you can hang out is a uh, like a, a gigantic i don't know 150 inch curved screen mm-hmm. um and on that screen you can actually watch 3d movies in 3d because your glasses have because you're the, the headset has 3D capabilities. You can watch 3D movies in VR together mm-hmm. with somebody else, which is pretty cool. Well, and, and the reason why I bring up the, the Netflix thing, which might be you know viewed by many people as a kind of a pedestrian app for a, a VR product like that, is that what I have found with consumers that, you know, especially ones that are just not naturally bought into the concept of buying a VR headset, regard, regardless of how great it is, is that there are... You know, gateway apps that that if hey, if someone really likes the experience they have with Netflix, you know, they will try other things. And you know, again, I think to your point, on shell, the the social implications of taking these apps and having allow a lot of users have a kind of a a social experience with many users. That's really intriguing. You know. Yeah, and, and uh, the interesting thing is, you know, with with apps like Netflix, um, you you have this personalization where only you see what you're watching on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And 
it gets you more immersed. And if you have, you know, good noise canceling headphones on, you forget that you might be sitting on the train for three hours right. or that you're on a plane for five hours. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's pretty awesome because you, when you're using Netflix on any other platform, people can see what you're watching right. and you also get distracted by things. So I think this could actually bring more immersion even to non VR content in VR just because of the immersiveness of being in VR. Right. Right. Well, it sounds like it's certainly an exciting product and, uh, I will probably head down to my Best Buy and buy one because I'm intrigued with that, and uh, it, it sounds like uh, you're very optimistic about it, so that's great to hear. Uh, the last topic I want to talk about, just spend a few minutes on, is that you know it was a pretty good quarter this week for uh, companies like Intel, Microsoft, and even AMD. AMD is showing a lot of strength on, their, um, on some of the uh, progress they've made with Ryzen as a very effective um, uh, competitor to uh, Intel's processor offerings, but uh, you know, what commentary do you? Um, I'll open it up to both of you guys. Um, uh, first, you on shell. What what are your thoughts in terms of um, the uh, each of those companies? Just a real quick thirty second thing on each of them. Yeah, I think that you know when it comes to Intel, they've shown that as a company, their data center business is just humming along, right. and. With, with the growth of technologies like 5G um, and Intel's position in that market when it comes to the data center, they are, you know, they're reaping massive rewards. And mm-hmm. with the growth of cloud computing, they have, you know, they have that entire market locked in. So, <laughs> you know, as if, if there's any growth in the IT industry, Intel is very likely to benefit from it. Right. Um, on the mobile side, obviously not as much. But the more devices there are on the mobile side, they're going to need more cloud and data center usage, and that's that's Intel's forte. So right. even though the PC market is kind of you know not really growing, also not really shrinking much, they're mm-hmm. still benefiting from their data center business greatly. Right. Yeah. Um, on the on the Microsoft side, you know, Microsoft has done a really good job of diversifying their business in ways that. Um, allow them not to be fully dependent on just Windows. Windows, right. So all the services that they provide, and most of them are cloud-related, um, have done really well for Microsoft. And because Satya Nadella has mm-hmm. really focused so heavily on cloud and enabling enterprise services, I think Microsoft's earnings have shown that. Um, you know, their their Xbox division is not doing as well as it could be. So they're just really not talking too much about it, mm-hmm. um, but you know, they have so much going well, well for them in the cloud business that um, I think that they're able to kind of shrug off any kind of um, less competitive on the gaming side. Yeah, um, I mean, and then- I, I, you know, and what I would add to that actually is that what I think Microsoft specifically has done a great job of doing is that in the old days. When uh, Will and I were working together, um, you know, the, uh, Microsoft was on a cadence where they would op- they would uh, they would announce a brand new spanking version of Windows every year. They tried to do it every year, every year and a half, and kind of kind of force an upgrade cycle that benefited the PC OEMs. And they've you know obviously shifted that strategy in the last several years, where instead of having a big announcement every year, they have two or three you know micro announcements with you know four or five features. 
and I think Microsoft is actually benefiting from that, uh, and, and it's certainly it's showing up in uh, 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 in their Windows um, revenue progress, which had a, a fairly decent uh, quarter. And I also think it's benefiting from the fact that you know more users like to upgrade Windows more frequently because of all these uh, concerns around um, cyber attacks. I think that's that's something that's kind of a uh, a tailwind that kind of helps people, um, encourages them to upgrade. But, uh, but it, you know, it's a different world than it was, if, uh, you know, back in the uh, late 90s, 2000s when, you know, every year was a new win window, release of Windows, and that forced people to get brand new hardware. Um, well, you know, Mark, Mark, you were a big fan of Windows 3.1, I remember. You know, you're starting to make me to be an old man. Well, is that, is that your intent? You. Yeah, yes, you are. You are. You are. And there's a lot of other jokes I could bring up. But um, so I think we've uh, we've kind of uh, gapped out on time uh, for today's call. Thanks to Will. Thanks to you, Anshel, for your insight on today's topics. Please follow more insights and strategy on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or our usual social media um, suspects. And again, thanks for your time, and thanks to Will and Anshel. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Talk to you guys next week.